Hi, everyone. Thank you to Chutit and Ellie and Erwin and Gary for organizing this evening very much on the fly. For those of you who don't know me very briefly, my name is Eve Harrow. I, I made Aliyah to Efrat in 1988. I am a tour guide. Not very busy these days, as it turns out. Um, I am, for One Israel Funds, I'm their director of tourism and education, which is how I know some of you in this room. Because just a year ago, we were in Israel on a mission, and the places that appeared on the news on October 7th are places that some of you saw and were there, standing there, which most Israelis, let alone tourists, have never been to. So that wasn't the reason that we went on that mission. It was because I felt very strongly, A, because One Israel Fund is involved with the Kitzot Konanut, also there, but also the story of Israel is not just Judea and Samaria. The story of Israel starts way before that, and the people who live in that area of Israel are the beginnings. It's the 1930s, it's the 1940s, and the 1950s. So as it happens, when Kerem Shalom shows up on the news with the wall with all the paint on it, I'm sure a lot of you said, we're there, we know that. Okay, so two out of the six people on the Kitot Konanut are no longer with us um, because they had to do what they had to do. So one of the things, and I'm going to have, I have a slightly different perspective, Maybe it's a generational thing. But one of the things that I don't suffer from these days is a um, is my worldview being blown to smithereens. All right, maybe because I have a master's degree in psychology plus a master's degree in land of Israel studies and archaeology. So not only am I understanding a little bit more of how people think and respectful of how people think, so maybe in my house, which is the whole marriage thing, but we'll leave that alone for a second. Um, but also very much understanding the history of the region and made it my business because I have also spent since, almost since I made Aliyah, debating, okay, because the settlers, right? So they would bring me in as the person who lives in Judea and Samaria, the one who's responsible for the lack of peace in the Middle East and for the reason that Israel is hated. So I have had some fascinating experiences. I was also on the local council in Ephrat for 10 years. So I learned a lot about how local government works or sometimes doesn't. I think your father's, your father's Dovi? Yes, okay, so exactly. So he might know that as well. Um, and also making it my business to understand the neighborhood that we're living in. Because while it feels like sometimes Israel is a little America, right, it's very modern and there's all of that and there's McDonald's or whatever it is that shows Western civilization, that's pretty sad if it's McDonald's. But Israel is in the Middle East, deep in the Middle East. But as Jews, um, we don't always speak Middle East, okay? And you can take it right out of last week's Parsha. The, part, the weekly portions are eerily representing what we are going through now, the rape of Adina, right? And the vengeance that her brothers wreak on the people. But we find ourselves in a place where we don't want to kill anybody, right? We do not want to kill anybody. We just want to be left alone, to be creative, to really fix the world, not the trendy tikkun olam, but really just make the world a better place. We were given a mandate a long time ago to teach right from wrong. And I think what's happened, and I'll tell you in a minute, my experience is on October 7th and since then, I think what's happened is a very clear right from wrong. There, there is no gray here. All right, and people say that like our enemies are like Amalek. I'm not even sure Amalek did what Hamas has done. And I won't call them animals because animals don't do what they did. 
Okay, these are barbarians, and it is very clear that this is an evil that cannot be allowed to exist. And not just because it's against the Jewish people. We are always the canary in the coal mine. This is our story. When places start falling apart, they come after the Jews first because most people don't care. Antisemitism is the oldest and least understandable hatred, okay? And it's always there. And this is all part of it. And this is all part of it. There is no, and this is where I will differ with them, um, maybe because my neighbor um, about 20 years ago was in the supermarket in Efrat and noticed somebody wearing a vest with wires coming out of it. And it was someone that he knew and that I knew because he had built our houses, okay? But he wasn't supposed to be in the supermarket because he was a construction guy. And just before he hit the plunger on that suicide vest, my neighbor shot him in the head and saved everybody in the supermarket. All right, so I was paying very much attention also because when you go into a debate situation, you have to know what's going on. And I learned a tremendous amount from the people I debated because I don't know if any of you are ever in debate situations, you're not actually trying to convince the person you're debating with, you're talking to the audience. Because the person you're debating with is not, I mean, last year I debated Gershon Baskin, the guy who was so proud of himself because he's the one who negotiated with Hamas for the Yilad Shalit deal, okay? And a letter that he put out a few weeks ago wasn't, I was wrong, you betrayed me by not, it's like, are you serious? This is where your ego is, Hamas betrayed you? Like, didn't you see past it to who they really, really are? Because they didn't keep it a secret. If we didn't know, it's because we weren't paying attention. The Hamas has been brutally honest. And we have had glimmers of this ideology, if you will, for many, many years. The Fogels, remember the family that was killed in Itamar? I don't know if you know, but their baby was beheaded, all right? After, I don't know if that's how they killed her, but their baby was beheaded. And um, and Ori Ansbacher, some of you know Steve Weil, this is a relative of his, who was raped and mutilated, her breasts were cut off, probably while she was still alive. All right, so we knew this was there. The difference on October 7th wasn't what they did, it was the scale of what they did and who they attacked. Because when it's only the people in Judea and Samaria who maybe like shouldn't be there and were on somebody else's land, so we kind of like deserved it. All right, that's the mentality that a lot of people had. Some people probably still have that because so this is like a little more personal, but my, my father was born in Berlin in 1932. And in 1933, when the Nazis came to power, my grandfather took them to Palestine. I'm actually the daughter of a Palestinian, because the Jews were the Palestinians up until 1948, all right? And he grew up in Jerusalem, and he calls himself, so I'm not dissing him, he calls himself an anti-Semite, because what he says to me is, this, the German Jews were amazing. We never would have fostered any kind of hatred. But when those Eastern European Jews started coming into Germany with their peyote and their hats, that's what got everybody upset with the Jews. Okay, so I grew up with this, hearing this and realizing at some point that that was ridiculous. Okay, and we're always trying to blame ourselves. It was this kind of Jew, it was that kind of Jew, you know, and unfortunately, there are some Jews who appear in the headlines for not great things. That's the reason. And we have to understand, and Hamas is honest about it. The some of the people that they killed on October 7th were peace activists, were people who had taken them to the hospital to get treatment. And it wasn't an accident that they were killed because as I'm sure many of you know, the houses were mapped out. They knew exactly who they were killing, all right? They were killing the very people that you would say had made every effort to coexist with them. So this is beyond our control. And this is 
sit with that for a second because this is one of the hardest things to understand. This is not something that we can change. We think as Americans and Westerners that you just be a little bit reasonable or you make the explanation, you show the facts and someone will say, oh, I get it, now it makes sense. This is something beyond that. This is not about coexistence. This is not about a two-state solution. This isn't about land. This is about wiping Jews away from Israel. It's not about making their lives better because that, they could have had that a long time ago. It is simple hatred. Some of it is for Islamic reasons and jihad. And by the way, Israel is not the main goal. You guys are. The West is. So, and this is the point that I'm sure all of you know, but I'm making it now because you need to spread this forward. Many of you are involved in a lot of different organizations and you know Christians and you know other Jews. Perhaps explain to them, this is not just about Israel. This is so much bigger than Israel. And, and although is one of Israel's goals here is to wipe out Hamas, we're not gonna be able to do that because Hamas is an ideology. All right, like even though the Americans went after ISIS, there are still people, I think the guy who did the attack in Paris yesterday, he's an ISIS guy. So yes, ISIS doesn't control an area of Syria anymore and, and they're not going after all the different tribes, but the ideology is still there and it's that same ideology and it's everywhere in the world. It's everywhere in the world and it's here too. So Israel is at the forefront of fighting this, which is maybe what the Jews are meant to do. I mean, we got the Torah because the creator of the world, for whatever reason, decided that we were going to be the people to have that kind of moral clarity. And I'm talking about as a people, not as individuals, because personally, not always where we want to be. And this is right. I think on October 7th, we got a glimpse of the ancient world before the Torah was given. This is the way everybody behaved. This was the norm. You went in, you conquered, you did. You took the women because then you had, they had your children, okay? And that's how you decimated the civilization. And that's, you, you had them have your children impregnated them, and that's when they were done. That's, by the way, why Iran became Islamic, because they came in, and that's what they did to the women there, so, to the Persian women. So this is, if you understand history, there's nothing new happening here. What is new is that we can defend ourselves again. So I know that that October 7th was the worst day that the Jewish people had since the Shoah. But we are not back in the Shoah because we can now defend ourselves. I gotta tell you guys, I'm worried about you. Okay, I'm, I'm worried about you because you guys, you can't really defend yourselves. We in Israel are sitting and listening to all this anti-Semitic stuff here. I'm like, oh my God, what are they gonna do? You know, and you're sitting here and you're worried about us. One of my sons-in-law is a carpenter which led to a very funny discussion when he was first dating my daughter about his stint at Chippendales. Because my understanding of Chippendales is a male strip club, okay? So he's talking about when he was at Chippendales. I'm like, what? And it turns out that Chippendales is also a carpentry shop in Scotland making very high-end furniture. So once we got that straightened out, and thank God they're married, and they have seven beautiful children, but that was a little, yeah, we still joke about that. Um, but he told me once that the hardest thing to build is a chair. You wouldn't think it's all that complicated to build a chair. He said a chair is the hardest thing to build because not only does it have to stand, it has to hold weight much bigger than the chair is itself. And I look at us that's a Jewish people, 
as a chair. You guys are one leg of a very important chair. So we're doing things in Israel and we're fighting and the home front is unbelievable and there's people praying and there's people doing all kinds of things. But you hear that that chair will collapse without you. All right, it is, it is simple, but it's incredibly important. It's the structure of who we are now and how we are all holding each other up. So on October 7th, Simchat Torah, um, we actually own an apartment in Ashkelon, and that's where we go for Shabbat. So we were supposed to be in Ashkelon that weekend, but I had a doctor's appointment at 9 o'clock Friday morning. My husband said, you know, until we get there and whatever. So we didn't go. So we're home in Efrat, and one of my sons is with us with his uh, wife and very adorable little daughter. And then we get the news. And we did, uh, you couldn't avoid it. And we an we're also Shamer Shabbat, but we answered our phones, and we start seeing what's going on. And then my son gets his call up. He looks at his phone and he says, I have to go. So I watch him kiss his wife and daughter goodbye and leave, all right, and go to his unit. Um, two days later, one of my other sons was in Germany, of all places, on a business trip. So he fought to get back also. That's what everybody was doing. Taking a train through Germany, always an interesting experience if you haven't had it. But he, I said to him, this must be weird for you. He said, not this time, because this time, the train took me to the airport where there was a big plane with a big star of David on it. And I was going with other people to fight for our country, for our honor, and for the fact that they are never doing this again. So it was almost a tikkun. It was almost like a little bit of a closure because when my father left Germany in Berlin in 1933, it was as a refugee in a very different way. So he came back. So the scene that I had with my son on that Shabbat was repeated two days later with my son and my other daughter-in-law in front of their house. One of my daughters, I have seven children, was also standing there. And he kisses his wife goodbye, he kisses his kids goodbye, he gets into the car, he went north, my other son went to Gaza. And I just thought there and I said, like from time immemorial, women have stood here and watched men go to war. For what? For what? Why does this have to keep happening? So the women in Israel are amazing are just amazing. I call my daughter-in-law now, now I'm really dating myself, Rosie the Riveter. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, because I, I think for her birthday, I'm getting her like a construction belt because my son's not home. So it's like, it's the toilet go, whatever. And there's no, it's not like there's men around. There's really not men around. And the women don't have what Chani has here, which is you guys, all right? So the, I try and babysit the kids and, but you know, they're working, they're taking care of the children. They're worried sick about what's going on. Um, you know, sometimes not hearing from their husband for weeks at a time, which, which is happening. Fortunately, that hasn't happened with my boys, but it's happening everywhere. Um, the mornings are spent, I, if I sleep past 4.30, um, waking up, looking at my phone to see the in Hebrew, we can uh, now make this public and you know that what's following are the names of the people who are no longer alive. All right, and looking and having that is just a name that I know and there have been names that I know. Um, Michael Leiter, who's the founder of One Israel Fund, so his son Moshe was killed. Um, that was a bad morning. But it's the, it's the niece of a friend and it's the cousin of one of my kids' friends and it's the brother of another one of my kids' friends because it's a small country. It's a small country. We're all two or three degrees at most separated from each other. And this is how it has been 
for the last few weeks. The reason that I'm here is because I have a son who lives in Connecticut. I, I had no plans on leaving Israel. Um, but last Saturday, I have a, a 10-week-old granddaughter in Connecticut who I'd never seen. We were supposed to come and visit, and then the war broke out. So last Saturday night, I said to my husband, I have to go see this child. There's supposed to be a ceasefire this week. Can I go for a few days? So I came. I came from Connecticut this morning. This whole evening was put together really on the fly, like totally amazing. Um, I'm trying to... I'm trying to find the words to explain to you that we are living with every emotion possible at the same time. Like, I think to myself sometimes, it's not humanly possible to feel like this. Like, tremendous sadness, tremendous sadness. At the same time, tremendous pride in what's happening. And you, you see what's happening, you know, in, the, in civilian society. There was one story that came out about a woman and her husband. He had just gotten out of the army for like 24 hours and they went out to eat and somebody picked up the bill, which is happening everywhere. If you show up in a restaurant wearing a uniform, someone's gonna pay your bill, all right? Because everybody just wants to do everything that we can for the soldiers. And a Haredi girl, an ultra-Orthodox girl, came up to them as they were leaving the restaurant and said, can I have a blessing from you? So the wife said to her husband, oh, you wanna give her a bracha? And the girl said, no, no, I want a bracha from you, from the wife because I want to be an Eshet Chaya like you. So there's an understanding here that there are things happening. Look, up until October 7th, we were like a crazy country. The reforms and this, and well, we're not showing up for reserve duty, 120% of call-up. That's why they ran out of vests and things, because people showed up who weren't supposed to show up. They, like, they hadn't done Miluim, they hadn't done reserve duty. Everybody wanted to do something. And the, some, of the, some of the chesed, some of the loving kindness, has been so breathtaking that I think to myself, this isn't humanly possible, what I just read or what I just saw. People just doing everything they can for others, um, a, sense of, a sense of purpose and a sense of focus. This is an evil group of people, and we cannot let them continue to do this. They cannot do this ever again. Commensurate with that is worrying about the hostages. And, you know, and what do you do? Because it's clear that any deal that we make for the hostages will eventually cost us in the lives of soldiers. There's just no way around it, okay? The ceasefire allowed Hamas to rearm, the, the fuel that's coming into Gaza. Okay, we know where it's going and it's not necessarily going to the people there and I wanna talk about that in a second. So it's these constant balances of what do we do? But then you look at the pictures of these hostages, like the Vox, like, we got to get them out. Like, how can this possibly be? You know, and Hamas is so cruel, not just physically, but psychologically. And, and we need to understand that because we have a tendency, even knowing what we know, to still look for the good. I didn't, maybe it's a flaw in the Jewish people. I don't know what it is. But we still try. There's got to be some humanity in there. It's not. And the, one of the big discussions that's going on in Israel is, and I'm sure here also is, how culpable is their civilian society? Okay, are they all part of this ideology? Okay, and it could be. I mean, you watch some of the pictures, they give out candies, terror attacks already for many years, they're giving out candies. We know how the children are being educated. Um, so are they all part of this? In, you know, so they're all guilty? Or has Hamas taken over a group of amazing human beings who themselves are human shields? The truth is probably somewhere in the middle, okay? Because, I, look, I, I have been 
and it's part of the reason my why my why, my worldview wasn't blown up, because for many years I have fought against a lot of the things that ended up happening against Oslo. I can't tell you how many demonstrations because it was clear that it, it, you couldn't have land for peace when the problem wasn't land. Right? You're not going to solve a problem. You're not going to solve it if you've misidentified the problem. And the more that we give in and compromise, because that's what Westerners do, we'll come to the middle, the weaker we look. And in the Middle East, weak is done. And I don't like Ehud Barak at all, but when he said years ago that we are a villa in the jungle, he was exactly right. All right, so we come at all of this with, we project our worldview onto people who don't have that. So Oslo and relinquishing places, feeling like, okay, if they just get some land, they're insulted, they're humiliated because we won the wars, they feel bad. So it wasn't going to happen. Um, in 2005, I moved down to Gush Katif with my kids. Um, we lived there. I had a press pass at the time because I also have a podcast once a week. And we moved down there. It wasn't simple to live there. There were mortar attacks. My kids still remember my two youngest learned to ride bicycles. Like, and I would just make sure that they got home because it, was, it wasn't easy to be there. We were hoping that, I'm talking about the expulsion, what people call the disengagement. We didn't break up with Gaza. It was an expulsion of close to 10,000 people. Um, and so I was hoping that somehow it would be stopped. It wouldn't happen. Um, but it did happen. And uh, that was on, and some of you, if you, those of you who were on the mission with me last year heard me say this, unless you were sleeping on the bus, which is fine. So I'll say it again. But I was in one of the hot houses on one of the last days. And I was talking to one of the Arabs who had worked there for many, many years. And I said to him, you must be so happy. Well, it was clear it was going to happen. I said, you must be so happy because in a few days, all this is yours. And he said to me, The blessings in this place came of the Jews and then the leave of the Jews. At which point I said something incredibly obnoxious to him. I said, how do you know that you're a Muslim? And he said to me, what does it matter that I'm a Muslim and you're a Jew? Some of us see God's hand in the world. And this place only blooms when the Jews got here. There is a special connection with the land of Israel and the Jews. He said this to me. He said, it's going to be awful now. There were just the two of us there because he probably would not have had this conversation with me if anybody had been listening. He said, um, it's going to be all over for me now. He said, I work for this Jewish farmer and he treats me so well and he pays me on time. He pays me before he takes my own money and we have a wedding. He comes to my wedding and if we're sick, he worries about me. And he said, when my people start controlling this, it's all going to be finished. He said, the people are going to take over. And I said, and I said, I said, I'm comforting him. I said to him, and I was like devastated. This is happening. I said to him, no, it won't be that bad. And maybe it'll be okay. He said, no, no, no. He said, you don't know my people like I know my people. And not only was he even more right than we thought, but I tried to reach him a couple of years later to apologize to him for that obnoxious comment. And he'd been killed because the, the Arabs who had worked with the Jews we're seen not as people who want coexistence and not as people who are trying to have, you know, uh, bring together. They're seen as, as traitors. And that is something that I knew from a debate I had many, 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 many years ago when I was first starting off trying to represent the community when I was speaking to a Jewish group and there was someone from Peace Now or one of the similar organizations and, and an Arab, a Palestinian Arab and myself when everyone had left the room, the Arab said to me, I want you to know that I hate all Jews. I said, okay, that's a lovely ending to a delightful evening. And he said, no, no, I want you to hear this. 
He said, I hate you, but I respect you because you're a proud Jew. The Peace Now guy that just left here, not only do I hate him, I don't respect him because he betrayed his own people, meaning me. So if he could betray you, he will definitely betray me. Wow. Okay, so up until that moment, I thought of Peace Now as people that, and I grew up in California in the 70s, like I was eating granola before I was popular. Okay, so I was like, the rose-colored glasses that they had didn't fit on my face. Maybe I'm a little too cynical or whatever, but I was happy that there were people out there who believed in that, and, and I was hoping that they were right and I was wrong, all right? And when he said that to me, and I tried to explain to people on the left afterwards, and maybe it was the terminology I used, I used like useful idiot, probably doesn't go over well when you're trying to explain something to somebody, but guys, you don't understand you're being used. You're being used, they don't see it the way you see it, and it doesn't matter how you see it, it matters how they see it. This is where we have to humble ourselves. All right? It doesn't matter how we see it. What matters is how they interpret it. And so we see that, you know, we're, we're doing all we can to build a new Middle East and all of that. And they're seeing it that we are weak and that we are not proud enough and that we don't speak Middle East the way that maybe we need to. So we got a real big blow a couple of months ago. And, you know, the beautiful song that we heard. For those of you who didn't understand the words, it's Psalm 21, written by King David. Yeah, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil, for God is with me. Which, by the way, we think that he wrote in the Kidron Valley. For those of you who have been to Jerusalem, when the sun comes up behind the Mount of Olives in the morning, that valley, the Kidron Valley, is the valley of the shadow of death because the Mount of Olives is a cemetery. So it's literally the valley of the shadow of death. So it's, it's a beautiful idea or metaphor, but it also could be a physical place that he wrote it in. King David was a warrior, but because he was a warrior, he couldn't build a temple. Because there's an understanding that we have to be warriors sometimes. We don't want to be. And it, it, it takes you out of certain things. So the men that are coming back from war who've had to kill people because we don't have a choice, are carrying that on themselves. And it's an incredibly difficult to thing. And sending my kids to the army and, and from all three of my boys and two of my daughters served in the army, I was so worried that something would happen to them. That's obviously the first worry. But I was so worried that they would have to hurt somebody else. Because it changes who you are. It changes who you are. And, and just one story, and then all of these questions or something. Um, one of my sons, when he served in Hebron, which is a very difficult place to serve, and they were going after Hamas, because Hamas is all over Judea and Samaria. They're not confined to Gaza. And we know very well, which is why when Israel Fund is doing everything we can to supply the Kitar Konanut in the different communities, because we know that what happened in Be'eri and what happened in Sterot could, the only thing that's preventing them is the ability, not the will. All right? And that's why we have to do what we can to protect the communities. But he came back one night, uh, he came home after, he was up all night in Hebron, they were searching, they had been told there was a bomb that was gonna be put on a bus, and they had to go find it. And they go into apartments, because that's where they were hidden, and they walk in at two in the morning, and they're looking in drawers, because nobody leaves the bomb in the middle of the dining room table. Although now we're finding in Gaza that that's exactly, I mean, soldiers are finding, you know, bombs under kids' beds. And, and in all these places, there should be some kind of red line. There's no red lines. There's no red lines. 
And he came home and he was really, really upset. And he said, Ima, I understand why they hate us. I said, what? He said, I came in at two in the morning. We're wearing guns. We look scary. And we come in and we're looking through their underpants drawers and we're invading their private places. And the grandmother is shrieking and the little kids are crying. And he said, I looked at it through their eyes and I, and I understand why they hate us. And he was really, really upset. And I had two major reactions. I had a bunch of reactions, but two major ones. One was tremendous pride in him that he was still the mensch that we raised our children to be, that he had the humanity to see their side of it, and then blinding fury at the people who put him in that position, at the people who gave these places over to Hamas, because that's who took over, that forced him as a soldier, he has to find that bomb, that's his job, is to save lives. And it put him in an impossible situation, and our children have been put in an impossible situation by decisions that were not thought out and that we can't afford to make those mistakes anymore. And this is the tension that we're living in all the time, is trying to keep our humanity in a part of the world where we are dealing with the most base, base in the sense of like not even human, and being told by the world, well, you can do this, but only like a little bit. And you have to send them food. Who sends fuel and food to the enemy in the middle of a war? Who does that? All right? And so we're being told to have one hand behind my back, and the clock is ticking, and this is going on, and this is going on, and, and we're trying to do the best we can, and it's costing our lives. It is costing our lives. Do I know it's going to end? I don't know where this is going to end. What I think may happen, and I'm so far from being a prophet that it's, like, ridiculous, um, I think this is going to get bigger because the problem isn't the Hamas, the problem is Iran. And Hamas is one evil tentacle of the octopus, but Hezbollah is in the north. So one of my sons is serving near the Lebanese border, and um, he's got one of the guys in his unit is from Roshanikra. And Roshanikra is right on the Lebanese border, like just out. And the guy said, I'm not going home. His family's been taken out. He said, I'm not going home. I live 300 meters from Hezbollah. So what happened in Otef Aza is going to, you know, in Gaza, it's going to happen up there. So now our country has actually shrunk because the people who lived, on the border of, of Israel, not territories, Judea and Samaria, recognized state of Israel are now not on the borders. Those people have to be able to go home. They're not going home if Hamas is across the fence because now we know that the fences don't do what they are supposed to do, okay? And so this is where we are. So what I think may happen is this will get bigger. An American ship was sunk today, I think, in the Red Sea. So... And people are ignoring it. I, I think what may happen is something that's so big that you can't ignore it anymore and that this becomes bigger. And maybe it needs to, I don't know. But um, all I know is that as much as I don't want anybody's children to die, it doesn't mean, I don't feel good when I see, you know, little Arab kids who are, you know, living in Gaza right now. But my people come first. And it's a, it's a terrible thing to even say, let alone think. But we have been forced into this situation where it's an us or them situation. We better make damn sure that it's us. And you are all a part of that.